What's up, legends? Today, I catch up with a founding member in Melbourne, Mr. Paul Hart, the co-founder and CEO of Canary Capital. Canary Capital is a company that scours Australia, finding the most unique Australian companies that have global scale opportunities. Paul and Canary have raised over $100 million since 2017, which has been used to pump up Australian business. They've helped several companies go from a 10, 15, $20 million market cap into the hundreds of millions of dollars in valuation. Paul shared the five pillars that they use to assess a company and whether it is worth investing in, his tips on how founders should manage shareholder relations, and how founders can make themselves the most investable founder possible. Paul is an expert in this field. Hope you enjoy the show. Our new Melbourne space is going to be absolutely perfect for you. When you bring your investee, with people you invest in, are they investees? Oh, there's a mixture of these companies and, and investors. So when you bring the company, or even the investors, trust me, this space is is... It's a league above our current Melbourne clubhouse. I think it's going to be perfect for you. Fantastic. I look forward to using it. Yeah, well, so I've been looking forward to having you on the show. So welcome to the show. We are, we are live now. Um, but uh, me and you have had many conversations before about um, due, basically due diligence is, 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 is typically what we've spoken. And I know you've hosted a lot of cub um, events. Uh, you're on our investor board, um, or you're, you're, you're a board member of our invest, uh, investment community here at Cub. Um, so I know that you are a master of, I would say due, due diligence is the thing you normally speak to me about. Mm. Um, but I know many other things and I just want to pick your brain today for, uh, for our listeners. I, I, I really want to, uh, I want to talk about the things that you've told me before mm. in terms of how to identify – basically, it's how to evaluate a company mm. is what you do know. Mm-hmm. And and whether or not you're investing you, – I mean, you might be an investor looking to evaluate, evaluate a company. Obviously, it's fantastic. But even like for someone like myself as as the entrepreneur, I want to know how people look at my company, mm. you know, how my company is judged. Mm. So, um, so thank you for coming on on the podcast. I know how busy you are. No worries. Um, do you want to give a quick introduction to Canary Capital yes. just before we jump in? Sure. So Canary Capital was found in, uh, founded in uh, 2017 with uh, my long-term friend, uh, Rune Sengupta. And we set it up with the objective of identifying quality Australian companies, which had the potential to compete on the global stage. Um, and when I say that, I mean, basically have a business that's unique enough that it can stand up anywhere around the world. That's that's what we look for. And is there any – is it industry-specific or could it be like agriculture, technology, whatever? So we are not – we are agnostic when it comes to areas that we invest in. However, we, are, we do follow trends. So one of the things that we look for is trends that are going on in the world – so the move to electric vehicles away from it and, and decarbonising is a massive trend right now. So then we'll try and identify uh, technologies, areas, industries that will benefit from those trends and then we delve deeper and try and find companies that we think can really outperform. What would you say are the major trends in business today? What, what are the waves coming through that – that you're seeing a lot of opportunity in? Uh, yeah, certainly green technology. 
is, is one. Ag tech, there's more and more people on the planet. They've got to be fed. So therefore, we've got to produce more with less as, as development happens. Cybersecurity has become really important. There's a lot of, obviously, criminal activity and espionage going on from different countries around the world. So we identified that as a trend probably 2014 before we even set up Canary Capital. We backed a number of cybersecurity companies because we saw it as an, an area that would become more and more important. And so your your role, mm. you, you're not a fund in the sense. You, um, you scan Australia to find the companies that have the absolute best uh, ability to scale on a, glo- on a global scale um, that have a defensible market strategy so that they're, they're unique. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a database of how many roughly investors? Hundreds, five, five, six hundred investors on our database. And then we've got other people that we talk to outside of our network as and, well. And then so you present to them these companies and say, uh, investors, this is Cub, it is quite possibly one of the greatest companies that I've ever seen mm-hmm. come out of Australia. It's a great opportunity to get in. The first thing we would do, though, before we even put a company towards people is go through our DD process. Now, that that takes that can take – it's usually two months, three months of solid DD where we delve deep into what the company is doing. We have a list of about 40 different things that we, we look at, things like the history of the directors, patents, virtually every area, financials, every, every area in the – in, in the company we look at. So it, it's very important that we go through that DD process because until we do that, we don't know that it's a decent company. Well, I want to um, dive deeper into that later mm-hmm. in the in the, in the episode. Mm-hmm. But I, for now, I just want to start with you because, I mean, before Canary Capital, Capital you also had a very successful career. Where, where are you from and where did you start your career? From Melbourne, born and bred here. Um I studied accounting and marketing, double major at, at uni. Those are two opposite things. Yeah, I just thought it was a, a unique combination. And I actually, believe it or not, I, I actually, as I got older, my grades went up and, and the marketing side of it, I got extremely high grades in the end. Uh, and then, look, went into, I had several jobs. The, the last major role that I had, though, was with Cadbury Schweppes, um, Global Strategy, I was a senior business analyst there and my job there was to go around to different business units all around the world and and help them with their strategic planning. And so Cadbury Schweppes, that's like the chocolate and like the drinks together? Mm -hmm. So they're the same company? Yes, it it was, but it's not anymore. uh, They've they've been uh, separated. So Cadbury was taken over by Kraft and then Kraft um, separated out the, the drinks and the um, confectionery business and Mondelez is the current owner of, of the confectionery business. I was on the confectionery side, not the drink side. And so you'd go uh, to, so like you'd go to one of the confectionery companies, like it could be, I know Mars Bars for a different company, mm. but let's say it's a Mars Bar. <laughs> you'd go to Mars and be like, right, what, 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 what's, what, what do you do strategically for them? Or what would you do? So I'll use a Cadbury product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably, their, it's probably of, a lot smarter. One of their big <laughs> products is uh, Eclairs and they're, Big sellers in Asia, warmer market because it's caramel with the chocolate centre. So we used to go into markets, spend a lot of time in China and um, Vietnam, Malaysia, helping them with their business plan as to how to really drive sales and grow the business. So it'd be like head office. It's like if Cub was owned 
well, let's say it'd be like me going to a, a clubhouse that, uh, you know, if we opened a Geelong mm-hmm. club and going to them and saying, hey, guys, let's look at your business. Let's see how we can make it better. Yep. Essentially that. Essentially, or in the case of Vietnam, I think I traveled there probably 25 times over a couple of years. We were actually setting up a new business unit there. So that was starting from scratch. We had to identify which distributors we wanted to use. Um, manufacturing, it was imported, so there was no no actual manufacturing plant. But in some cases, if we want to, if we do want to produce something in a country, then we have to find someone that can do it. So you got to take that into account when selecting partners. Um, so it was different for different countries uh, as to what we it's did. Cool but job, it was, though. It was a good job. Yeah. 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 The one thing, in the end, because there was a lot of travel, um, I was probably traveling every second week and long haul. Places like London, New York, uh, China, Vietnam. I had a young family, so uh, and we in the end we were presented with a choice of either moving to Singapore or or um, or staying here and taking a package. And I assessed things. I took the family up there. We had a look in Singapore and just said, "No, nah, our lifestyle is better here." So we like a slightly bigger island. But that was my that break and that package that I took was enough for me to step out and say, okay, here's where I go out on my own. That is, that's when you decided to start a business. Yes. Yep. Okay. So, so you re- you weren't uh, like when you were young in, in uni, were you thinking, I want to start a business. That's what I want to do. Or were you thinking I want to be, you know, high up in the corporate world? So from a very young age, and I think I told you this, um, I've told you this previously, but when I was in my, my teens, I would set up businesses then just to help make money. Now, some some of them were simple like window cleaning or doing developing pamphlets for fish and chip shops or things like that. So I, I've, I've got entrepreneurship in my blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always interested in shares because my father used to invest and I watched him from a very early age. So, um, so I, I guess entrepreneurship in – you know, in my genes plus an interest in the stock market was what led me to do what I'm doing today. And it was the best decision I made. Because, it's funny how some people just, they, they, some people have, I mean, I've spoken a lot of, a lot of business owners obviously on the podcast, but just in general, cause what I do. Mm. And there's all different types of like, some people know they want to be a business owner from the start and that's what they do. Some people actually, they they're not thinking about being a business owner and the opportunity just kind of arises where they fall into the, you know, they fall into a business owner and, um, um, kind of role. Like they, it just happens to them essentially. Like you, you know, you, you don't know, but some people like yourself, they've got that in their blood that there's, mm. they, they know from a young age that I'm doing something, I'm going to be doing something in uh, mm. entrepreneurial. Mm. So I guess when I, when I was working at Cadbury and other organizations as well, I, there's a, there's a lot of politics that goes on and it's hard, sometimes it's hard to get things done and those restraints become frustrating. So that's a, that's a reason that pushed me to more towards setting up my own business. I wasn't actually thinking about necessarily running my own, my own company, but, you know, when the chance came up to leave Cadbury uh, and I had some money, a bit of money behind me. I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, I'll do it now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and and what about the family? What did the wife say about that? Or what were the kids? Did the kids know there was – how old would they have been? Ooh, 
2007, so six. Oh, they were young. Four. They don't know what's going no, on. No, they didn't know. And what about what about the conversation with um, your wife? Was was that a, a scary conversation to have as as a as a partner because as a partnership because you know there's the security of the big corporate role, and then I guess the risk of of um, entrepreneurship. Uh, she was always very supportive of me, um, and wanted me to get out and have a, a crack at you know running my own business. So it wasn't really a problem. It, I guess the pressure was more on me. I, I I felt it because I thought, yep, I've got to make sure that the mortgage gets paid, that we're, we're generating enough income to have a, a decent lifestyle. So the, the pressure, I felt the pressure, but I, it, it wasn't from other people putting it on me. And how do you generate revenue or cash flow in your style of business? Because it's, it's, um, I mean, making an investment and getting a return on that investment can take a lot of time and there's not much cash flow. Yep. So how do you, how do you create, I guess, that initial cash flow for the business or that? So our business, our business is built around, um, several different revenue streams. The first one is we've raised in the five years with Canary Capital, well over a hundred million dollars for, for different companies. So we, we charge fees for raising that money and the industry standard is sort of 6%. Um, so that provides a very, um, you know, solid revenue stream. Regularly. To, to pay, um, pay your costs. Uh, secondly, uh, if we're investing in a company, we will always uh, invest alongside our clients because if it's not good enough for our money, it's not good enough for theirs. So... We tend to back companies fairly heavily that we're going into. Uh, and then sometimes if we're working closely with companies over the long term, we, we also have retainers, monthly retainers that we get paid to, to help. Advisory, on board, advisory, things like that. Yep. And obviously you're an expert at that because you were also doing a lot of that in the previous uh, at Cadbury Schweppes. So we, we, we will advise them on things like how to write good announcements, presentations. Because um, it's an important topic though because like – there's a lot of businesses that haven't got great cash flow, and then, uh, but there might be, uh, but like for example, property development. Mm. You know, so it, it, it's just a good question for people. It's like, okay, well, if I am in a business that doesn't have fantastic cash flow, for example, Carbo has a very good just monthly recurring mm. revenue. And how how do I I yeah do I need that regular that revenue, and how can I find it? You know, maybe. It, Normally, I guess with developers, often they're builders, so they're getting cash flow through a building company. Mm. Um, but uh, in your case, you've you, you've got the the fundraising and the uh, and the advisory mm. board, board uh, seats and, and things mm. like that. And so, obviously, uh, you've got a lot of people and a lot of smart people trusting you, uh, trusting your uh, due diligence on the companies that you mm. find. Mm. Can you walk me through that due diligence process? Mm. Um, um, and uh, identify I, what makes a company worth investing in. One of the most important things, uh, we've, we've got a, a number of pillars at Canary that we look for and, and our due diligence does stem off those pillars, but there are five of them. And the first one is comes down to people, management. So we need to be backing people that have a track record of success. We need to, in, in our due diligence, we need to go... But, go behind, delve deep, see what they've done in the past, make sure there's no uh, skeletons, skeletons in the closet <laughs> um, and, and come work out whether we think these people are worth backing and whether they have a, a you know good track record and likelihood of, of succeeding. 
So that's that's the first one. The second one, which sort of comes back to my time with Cadbury, is making sure that the business has a clearly defined strategy. Um, and I don't just mean one line sentence on that. I mean strategy in terms of what are you trying to achieve long term? What's what's your vision? Um, how are you going to achieve that vision? And and that's where the strategy comes in. But you've got to look at things like your products, pricing, distribution. Um, you know, the full what is the full yeah. product price promotion place? Yep. Remember that from yep. year year yep. ten business class, which I nailed. Shout out to Mr. Walker. Mm. So, and and that sort of brings me to the to the next one in terms of scalability. So we want to invest in businesses that are truly scalable, not just in Australia but overseas. Often because we are in Australia, they will start here and they'll start building their business here before expanding overseas and we're seeing that happen with a number of companies that we've, that we've backed uh, several years ago now branching out overseas. Um, very importantly, IP, so intellectual property. We, we want to make sure that there are barriers to entry because if you've got a company that's just producing a product but it's generic and someone else, and yes, it takes off, but someone else can come in tomorrow and copy it, it's like with uh, any industry where they're making too much money, it will attract competitors, right? So it, we, we want barriers to entry in the form of IP being patents or it can be in-house trade secrets and that can come down to code. The code that you've got behind BOA, that's, that's IP. BOA. 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 It, that's IP. BOA um, sounds shit. I can't call it BOA. <laughs> BOA sounds cool. BOA. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, um, so. So people, strategy, scalability, mm -hmm. IP or barrier to entry mm -hmm. and there's one more. Using all that information and what we gather from the DD, we'll, we'll do financial modelling and we'll, we'll try and project out how, what we think the future of that company is going to be. Often if we can do it, we'll do um, cash flow estimates and then discount them back at, um, you know, today's interest rates to make sure that the company is worth something. So calculating a net present value of future cash flows is, that's the ultimate in terms of being able to uh, Money, the finance. accept or calculate whether a company's, what a company's worth. Yeah. What it's, what it's going to be generating in the future is essentially, yeah. that, that's the, yeah, that's, that's what all the others lead to. Unfortunately with startups, you don't have the luxury of necessarily having already revenues in the bank. So you really, you make it, you are making a lot of assumptions behind that. So of those five, let's maybe potentially drop the financial projections um, because like you said, in some cases, particularly in startups, they, 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 they may be harder to find. Of those four then, people, strategy, scalability and um, barriers to enter, ent to enter, what's the most important one? Honestly, they're all, they're all critical. But if I was to pick one of them, that's that's really important. It probably comes back to the people. Yeah, I would have. If you thought don't have that. good people, you don't have a future. And you said that you look so you look back into people to the uh, the, the leadership team's uh, history mm -hmm. now to to see what their likelihood of creating a success would be. Now, if they have had a history that you know, maybe they've had a company, it didn't work out, it failed, or, or what? How do you look at that as as investors? Do you think mm, that's not good? Uh, or do you think, mm, you know, maybe they've learned from that or, or how, how do you perceive that? Oh, it's, 
there's two sides of the ledger that that would obviously go down as, as a negative in terms of the, the business that they've been running has failed but then we've got to there'll be positives hopefully if we're looking at a business that well this is this this business is globally scalable it's got the ip it has the potential to provide multiple upside for our investors so it's a matter of weighing weighing things up i wouldn't say that that would necessarily rule a business out and so what would you look for in terms of people in terms of a founding team or a founder what's the dream founder to invest in got to be someone that's entrepreneurial and has a real drive to grow a business and, and make sure it's, you know, take it to being a successful one. Understands the importance of the areas that we've talked about in the five the pillars. And we also want someone that listens because if we're going to get involved in a business and I'll, I'll explain there are two different levels of involvement, but if we're going to get involved in a business closely, we want to be working with them and we will share our ideas. We'll also do anything we can to help those businesses grow by introducing to people, other people in our networks. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one, but it, it, I'd say really drive, drive. eager, hungry. Yeah, it's that drive. I, I think that drive is crucial because you might be a genius, mm. but if you don't have that kind of dog in you, that that hunger, you know, that like I need to get, I need this. It's not a question of if I do this. It's a question of I need to find mm. a way to do this. I need to do. I need to do it. That's that drive. Is that that's what you're talking about? Yeah. I, I mean, you can have um, a business owner. They may be extremely intelligent and and really good coming up with ideas but when it comes to implementing them and and actually running a business they might not be suitable and we've had that happen to us a couple of times and so that's something you're weary <coughs> of or you make sure they've got a team around them that supports that as long as they have weakness a, yeah as long as they have a team around them but really it's important for the uh ceo the number one person has to have the right characteristics because if if they don't then to be able to to be able to manage him, run yeah. a company. Even if they have, like, we had a biotech that company. The head of it was more of a scientist, not a businessman. Mm -hmm. So that that obviously makes it hard, uh, less likely to be a success. And yes, you can surround yourself with people that might have the business knowledge, but at the end of the day, if you're the one in control, you might actually stymie the growth potential. Yeah, you might business. be an expert on what you do, but not an expert on on executing the business strategy. Yep. And and speaking of strategy, so you define strategy using BOA as an example. It's, okay, BOA is going to be, well, I want BOA, just using it as an example, I want BOA to be the largest network, of, or my goal for BOA is to be the largest network of business owners on planet Earth. Yep. And this is how we're going to achieve that. Mm -hmm. In short, that would be the strategy. Yes. The vision is... What you said first, making BOA the biggest, um, largest network, network of business owners. Yes, and then the the strategy is is how you're going to do it, and and that needs to be and, and is that in the form of like a business plan or is it a short? This is our strategy on a page. No, it's a business plan. Okay, so it's it, it's a substantial piece of document that's outlining yep. how they're doing yep. everything. So to give you an idea, um, a company that we've backed, uh, it's called it was called. Deep recognition when we backed it. It's now called true recognition. But it's it can take any camera feed from anywhere around the world and it will you can run AI insights on that camera feed and it'll it'll 
you can perform analytics to give you answers, right? We immediately saw the scalability of that idea because it can go anywhere. It can be used for safety monitoring. It can be used for security, car tracking, anything. Yeah, literally. Anything, literally anything. So we spent three months before we took that company on as a, a I'll call it a canary stable company in terms of that, that means we're going to back it and back it for the long term because we've done a lot of research. And we went right down into looking at the business plan that we were just talking about in detail, making sure that we had confidence in, in what they'd laid out, what they were trying to achieve. Okay. So having that business plan is, you can't be going to look for investors and say, hey guys, this is my idea. This is the thing. You, 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 they need to have some hard documentation about it. This is our idea. This is why we think it's a good idea. This is what we think it'll become. And this is how we're going to make it happen. So generally investors wouldn't see the business plan. That's a, the property of the company and there might be some secrets there they want to keep. Oh, okay. But what they will see is a presentation about the company and what they're planning, trying the to pitch achieve. pitch deck. Pitch deck. And that's exact. That's where, where we get involved in helping them um, prepare that pitch deck, making sure it's hitting the, hitting the mark. Yeah, the business plan is more for for the internal companies, but we need to see that to make sure we're confident in. Okay, yeah. So the pitch doable. deck, the pitch deck takes the main, th the the most summarised points mm -hmm. of the business plan, puts in a in a document, and and that and that's for the investors. Yes. And and you are actually uh, as the uh, as a board member of our uh, investor community at Cub, you actually um, were involved in a pitch night. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Um. And heard a range of pitches, I think some from members, some from non-members. What are some tips and tricks you can give us or give me on how to have a good pitch deck? Or Sorry, what are the no's? What are the things you should not do on a pitch deck that make a pitch deck not good? Um, you've got to make sure you only have a very limited amount of time, usually five, ten minutes. So you've got to really plan what message you're going to try to get across and what you're trying to get people to do. In the end, you're trying to get people to give you some money in return for shares in your company in that short space of time. So you've got to, you've got to really hit it hard and fast, explaining what the business is, what, you, what you're planning to do, why you're unique. Um, and, and it all leads in the end to the opportunity that you're giving presenting to investors and you've got to convince them that you are the person that's going to make them money in the end. If you don't do that, then you won't, you won't, uh, you won't get their money. I do like the, I guess the directness of the way you described it. It was like, well, your goal is quite literally to convert shares for, for capital. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, you've got five, 10 minutes to tell me everything I need to know. To, to, you've only got five, 10 minutes to tell me everything you, you can to get me to do that. And therefore, when you're building your pitch deck or you're, you're, you're practicing your speech or your investor speech, you can't be saying anything that doesn't support that singular goal, which is exchange shares for money. So it's, I'll, I'll qualify that a bit in terms of it's highly unlikely after a five-minute pitch that you're going to get someone writing you a check or, or sending you money electronically these days. Checks are ancient. Um, but it will open the door and you'll end up getting a number of leads from people at the end of that pitch who will come to you for more information. Or it might be a company like Canary Capital that says, oh, yep, I like that, the sound of that pitch. So we will reach out and talk to them and 
you know, maybe move, move into the due diligence phase. And the beauty that you guys have, like when, when someone gets, uh, when an entrepreneur like me gets lucky enough to uh, spark the interest of someone like yourself, it's, you're not just one investor, you're bringing a whole, you're bringing a whole crew <laughs> mm. of investors to the party. Um, um, and you become the social proof mm. for those investors. You know, if you've done your due diligence, they're like, okay, well, Paul's done it. I, I, I back what he does. So people rely on us. They trust us, our, our client network. Um, so, and, and we end up often becoming friends with, with people. But they trust our judgment, they trust our due diligence and they know that we delve deeply. In fact, we go deep enough into a company that we will know it almost as well as the founder and that helps us in many ways in terms of uh, finding oppo further opportunities for the company through within our network, maybe to grow their business um, but and also being able to explain it if our investors get questions, have questions, we can usually answer them without having to refer them back to the company because we'll know it. Having so much experience in dealing with founders, how do you, what a, what's advice you could share for founders in managing investor relations? One of the most important thing is to maintain regular communication with investors. You can't just take their money and then there's just silence. So it's very important that you communicate with them on a regular basis and we would say at, at least bi-monthly or monthly you put out an update in the form of a newsletter or, you know, it, it can be just a simple an email with bullet points of what's been achieved but you've got to stay in touch with investors because if they're on the ride with you and they've given you money the first time, they're probably your most likely source for getting further funding in the future, in future rounds. And it also just feels dodgy when you don't hear from that. Yeah. I invested in a company that you didn't invest in, regret it. But, um, but that was one thing that I was actually, how weird. I was just saying it to Laura in the car on the way here. I was like, I haven't heard fucking, I haven't heard shit from them. It's like that when you don't hear, when you give someone money, you don't hear from them. It's like they just stole your money. Mm. You, know, you, you didn't invest in a company because you have no idea what the company's doing. Mm. And, and I, I, I think that's and, – and I think it's important to remember that when someone invests, well, they actually own part of that company, mm. which means they need to feel like they're on that – whether or not they're active in, within the company, they need to be on the journey. Mm. They need to know what's going on uh, and progress that's being made and, and things like that. So, uh, so I, I, I completely agree with that. So with our, with our investments, because we put up – usually a large amount of money, both from, might be from a Canary, Canary Capital or one of our subsidiaries and or, and or personally into these investments, it's automatically in our interest that we follow the companies and make sure that they're, you know, keeping people up to speed. And that's something that we, we're really sharp on these days. If, if you don't talk to your investors, We'll get very annoyed. No, I agree. I'm uh, I'm experiencing this now with Boa. It's the first time I've I guess I've, I've done the whole capital raising, and um, I'm actually enjoying updating the investors and keeping them on on the journey because it's fun to share what you what you've achieved, you know, or what you what the plan is. Or oh, look, we thought this was going to be the case. It's not. This is the case now. This is why. Uh, it's actually quite fun to do it. And, and, uh, I, it would just come across shady. That, that's what, how I feel. It would come across shady if you, 
if you didn't do it. So I completely agree. Um, um, I mean, being an investor, whether it be in companies, um, uh, private companies or, or the stock market, I know you do both. Uh, I, market cycles um, play a huge, I guess, external factor in, in terms of your business. How do you manage, um, inve- well, A, investor expectations in, in a down market? Um, and how do you manage, you know, the founders, uh, well, really, how do you manage stakeholders in a market? Like, cause right now would be a relatively down market for, uh, for investment. No. So the broader market at the moment is, is quite, has been quite strong. It's come off in the last couple of weeks, but the small caps where we invest in have been in a downtrend probably for the last 12 months. And it's, it certainly has been getting tougher. One of the things driving that at the moment is um, in a high interest rate environment, it's hard to raise money uh, and and therefore investors, if it's a listed company, in, investors will be watching the amount, of, the amount of cash that companies have to keep funding their activities. And once that cash gets down to a certain level, it can cause a lot of nervousness and people might exit. So in a high interest rate environment, th- things have, have changed in terms of being able to raise capital easily. Whereas if it's a, sorry, if it's a zero interest rate environment... Money everywhere. <laughs> Money's everywhere. A company can basically price itself to infinity on just potential. Well, those days went out the door when interest rates started to go up. Do you think that that's kind of almost a weakness in a sense because then things aren't operating efficiently or realistically? No, I don't. I mean, markets go in cycles. Business, the economy goes in cycles. We're in an inflationary environment at the moment. Interest rates are going up. The whole point of putting interest rates up is to slow demand, which hopefully will put downward pressure on inflation because um, it's not inflation's not a great thing um, f- for people's uh, you know maintaining lifestyle. Um, yeah, so so it's not a bad thing when interest rates are zero and companies are valuing themselves extremely high. No, but it's probably un- it's not sustainable. I mean, they're going to have to fire a bunch of people. It's going to be – it's a balance really and, and at the moment a lot of startups, big names, you know, Facebook, um, yeah, LinkedIn, uh, a lot of big name companies have been putting off a lot of people. And, and yeah, that's what – yeah. So when that happens, they – I mean, they go on these big binges. They hire all these people. They pay them ridiculous money. They mm. pay for everybody's lunches and they pay mm. for it and they can work from home and they do all this stuff. Mm. Then the second the economy changes, they're like, oh, okay, sorry, you've all lost it. You've all got to lose. You've got to go. See yep. ya. We can't pay for you anymore. Capital was cheap when interest rates were zero. People could raise lots of money and to invest in, in their businesses, and it's not cheap anymore. And so uh, they're obviously the large companies. You mentioned small cap companies uh, have been uh, – uh, have uh, the, the market for it has been hurt. What's a small cap company? What does that mean? At Canary, we typically look for um, companies that are – capped anywhere between zero and say 20 million and have the potential to go up five, 10 or 10 times or more. Um, so I would say these days, small caps, probably 25, I consider it probably 25 million or even it could even be a bit more and, and under. And market cap, that is the, just the value of the company. Correct. So the total value, mm-hmm. the value of all the shares. Mm. We had, we've had over my investing career, I call them golden baskets and we'll talk about that a bit more later, but it's, it's where you get into a company very early at a very small market cap and you watch it grow and 
it, it multiplies many times over. I've probably had in my life, I don't know, eight, eight of those, which it might not sound a lot, but when you have a company going from, say, a 5 million market cap to 200 million market cap, it's, it's, it's significant. It's a significant upside for, for the investors. Mm. And you, what do you call it? A golden nugget or a golden, golden basket? Golden basket. And so those are companies that you, that's how you describe companies that go from yeah, a $10 million valuation to a $200 million valuation. Multi-baggers, we call them. Yeah. Multi-baggers. Mm. <laughs> that's awesome. But, but that's my, for, for me per- personally, in terms of building wealth, I'm trying to make golden baskets through investing in a company. And if it goes up many times over, then then hopefully it turns into one and, and I will have made a significant amount of money. And I should probably say at this point too, like there's a lot of um, members of CUB and, and a lot of listeners who uh, have successful businesses, they're looking for things to invest in. Mm. I mean, you always can invest in other businesses and following your five principles uh, in terms of uh, p- five pillars, sorry, you call them, mm. um, when, when doing due, due diligence is, um, uh, is, is crucial. But also I should, I've normally said at the end, but it just feel like it kind of fits here is that they, they could also get in contact with you. Um, it will have your LinkedIn and all that on, on the, um, on the Cubs website, mm. but uh, they can get in contact with you and also stay in the loop. Can they stay in the loop of what you're investing in and what you've done due, due diligence on? Yeah, we've got a mailing list. Okay, so they we, can do we that. We send people out um, deals that we're currently raising money for. We don't – Canary Capital probably only backs a couple of companies a year. Sometimes, Some years we might not do any. But, but when I say back a couple of companies, I'm talking about core ones that we're going to back for a number of years. Um, we talked – you mentioned before, I forgot to answer it, the – what do you do in down cycles? How do you manage people's expectations? So the way, the best way to do that is I talked about a core position and a trading position before. A core position might be something that you are willing, some money you're willing to put away for years and go through the ups and downs in the market, provided the business is developing as, as you want to. But there's also a trading, a trading position and that could be a position that is more short term in the same company but if the share prices go up on, you know, good news, you might take some money off the table and and will have made some made some profit. So that's one way of sort of helping to manage people's invest uh, in uh, expectations and hopefully make some profit along the way, even if things turn south and and you know. And what's the split you typically do? So if you had a hundred grand, you invest in the company, and the core position was eighty grand. You had twenty grand in trading position. Would, oh, sorry, why well, just – is 20% <laughs> you would do or would, that changes depending on the investors? It, it really changes depending on the investment, um, to be honest, and the type of industry you're looking at. So if I was looking at a mining company investment, the, the trading position call, uh, w- would generally be larger. Than it, it would be larger than it would be for another type of company. So if, if I've got 100 grand in a mining company – and they get some good results. I might sell fifty percent of it and hold fifty percent of it. Could be free carried, or, or, or um, you know, you might have taken a good chunk of your capital back that you can use in something else. And it really just mitigates your risk because you know, you, it, with your trading position, you might make back the money that you put in your core position anyway. Correct. And therefore, you've got your money back. 
Yeah, you haven't lost. Now let's just see. It hopefully it keeps going up. Mm. That's cool. I've never really heard of that core position and trading position. Mm. And so, how do you? Is that how you would profit from different market cycles, or or? Yep, generally. Or, yeah. yeah. The other, I mean, we we try and uh, also take out some hedging, but that's that's a really complex um, complex mechanism to use, but. Generally, taking money off the table along the way in good cycles is is a, a good way of making sure you make money in the in the long term, and you you can weather the downturn. And how would you keep investors stable in a downturn? Because like you know, people might want their money back, or they're, they're tight for cash. They need things. Has that ever been a problem? Or it's not really your problem, I guess, because they've invested in a company, not your fund important for us to stay close to the companies that we've invested in and therefore if we get our clients that have questions that we can answer them or if necessary we'll go to the company to um, to get the answers and again as I said earlier communication so making sure that the companies talk to the investors on a regular basis not only through newsletters but through webinars and um, and giving them the opportunity to ask questions uh, also, it's important to tell the good and the bad, so positives and negatives, so people get a picture of the true position. Um, so, yeah. And what do you love most about what you do? Like, because it can be a bit like, I'd get nervous, I reckon, mm. um, because you're, I mean, people are trusting you with doing your due diligence, even though they know it's a risk, it's still a business. Mm. Plus, you're putting large sums of money in other you know, really, it's other people's businesses. It's mm. you're backing people. I'd imagine it'd be a bit nerve wracking, no? Uh, was was earlier on, but generally with market cycles, because I've been through many ups and downs over my you know, 30, 35 years of investing. Uh, I'm used to it, so I I don't get nervous. I don't worry during down cycles anymore. Um, yes, you might see your your wealth. Decrease it <laughs> by a significant percentage, but in, in the end, as long as the businesses you invest in are, are decent, then you should be all right in the long run. Yeah, it's that whole Warren Buffett type uh, <laughs> style of investing. And he always talks about like temperament, having the right temperament to be mm. an investor. And I guess that's kind of what you were saying when you um, sometimes I invest in zero companies in a year. Mm. Other times, we, we, you know, we might just do two. So you really are looking. How many would you look at to find? How many do you look at a year roughly? Oh. 150, 200. Okay. So, yeah, you're really getting 1% to 2% yes. that, that you do. I'd say 1%. 1%. One, one, yeah, 1% to 2 yep. Well, I mean, if you don't, if you do pitch as a founder and you don't get investment from Canary Capital, you know, <laughs> don't feel bad. <laughs> There's another 99% who didn't. But, um, but Paul, we do have to wrap up. Thank you so much for, for today. Um, I do want to, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I do want to direct uh, people either – looking to raise capital or uh, even probably more importantly, people looking to invest into companies and, and to make companies through investments. Um, you can get in contact with Paul at cub.club forward slash podcast. You'll find his um, contact there uh, plus uh, favorite quotes, greatest lessons and favorite book, which I wanted to mention now because I know it's a fantastic one and I've mm. been told about it before. Um, do you want to share uh, your book recommendation and I guess why it's good? Uh, the book's called How to Get Rich. Um, uh, it, I was given it by a friend, um, 
the lessons I took from that were um, it's important to maintain control over your investments. Now, obviously, if we invest in a company, we don't necessarily have control of of the business itself, but combined you know, with shareholders, we do have some, some influence. Um, but the other thing that came out of that was uh, what I talked about earlier, that my job in terms of building my wealth has been to identify and really good companies which have multiple upside potential. And I call it just building golden baskets. As I said, I've probably had eight of them in, in my time, eight to ten probably, and, and I'm talking about companies' investments that ends up end up turning into like lottery wins. So wow. when you multiply... Eight times. Well, yes. if you want a ninth, I'll let you know when the next bowl around is. <laughs> I'm not okay. joking. We'll blow them all out of the water. It'll be like it'll be like the first eight in one hit. Nine. We'll count as nine through to sixteen. Okay. It'll be awesome. I'm <laughs> I'll certainly be looking for it. Yeah, no, no. I'll send it to you. Well, I mean, either way, you know, I'd come to you to show you the stuff anyway, just to get your thoughts on it. But thank you so much for today. You've been a member for I don't know. You're one of the founding members in Melbourne, so it's it's got to be six years. Or, no, when would when did Melbourne start? Two thousand maybe six years or something like it. You've been a member for a long time and, mm. and uh, we're very grateful to have you part of this community. No worries. Thanks. Thank nice you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for always. Hope you enjoyed the show.